Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Awakening Report. I'm your host, Doug Hamp. Great to be with you guys today, taking your questions today. Uh, we've had some interesting guests over the last couple of weeks, and those are always fun. But I always look forward to getting back to your questions. I think that's where the real fun is. Let me remind you that you can help support this program. Really appreciate it. First of all, make sure to subscribe and to like this. Like every one of them. If you like them, please click that button like. That really helps the algorithm. Uh, some people have said, I don't know why Doug's channel isn't bigger. It's because you guys need to like it. That's the only way to sort of uh, beat the system is to like that button. So please do. I would really appreciate it. Uh, and that would be wonderful. So thank you. Uh, you can also go to patreon.com forward slash Doug Hamp if you want to give um, there. You can give any as little as $2 a month. It really does help. I appreciate it. So thank you guys. Uh, a big shout out for those who are already giving. Thank you. It really does help. There's no uh, fat endowment behind this. There's not even a small endowment. Uh, but I, I do it because I love it. I love it. And I want God's word to get out. And I think that if we will take time and study God's word and dig into it, we will find that it has rational answers. It has amazing answers. It has supernatural answers, but it all makes sense. And it's a, it's a cohesive story that we don't have to make excuses for if we take the time to dig in and get into it. So let's get into your questions. Again, if you put a cue before your question, that really helps me uh, to see those a little faster. So let's jump in. Our first question is from John Padilla. He says, in Revelation 17, 8, the beast that was and is not and will rise is said to be the state of Israel. Could this be possible? John, not in my opinion. I really don't think it's the state of Israel. Now, look, the state of Israel has its problems. No question about it, okay? Uh, the Jews are not perfect people. I think we can all agree with that because none of us is perfect. So it's not a big stretch of the imagination to realize that Israel's not perfect. Uh, even though I believe that God has his hand on them, he loves them, he cares about them, but they're not perfect, just like none of us. So let's go to Ezekiel chapter 38. I believe the answer is waiting for us right there. So let me pull up my, my uh, screen for you guys so I can show you what it, uh, what it says. Uh, and by the way, if you guys can just subscribe and stuff, I'm just kind of looking at my background. So just go ahead and do that. That'd be awesome. I'd appreciate it. So let's uh, let's let's do this. Let's go to Ezekiel chapter 38. I taught about this in my Revelation series. I really encourage everybody to to follow me on that um, because it's been a lot of fun and I uh, it's been exciting uh, just for me and my own personal study to put things together. And I, I feel like a lot of the answers have just been resounding in my brain, which is kind of cool, um, because God's word is coming alive in ways that I have not seen before. So in Ezekiel 38, verse 8, it says, After many days you'll be visited. In the latter days you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. So I believe this is referring to the house of Judah. Let's call them the Jews, who then uh, coming out of World War II, who were under the sword. They were brought back from the sword. They were gathered from many peoples onto the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. So I show in 
a teaching from Revelation chapter 16, where I deal with Gog and the people brought back from the sword, that this is talking about the, the modern state of Israel, which is comprised principally of people from the house of Judah. And they were definitely brought back from the sword, and they were brought back to a land that was desolate, which is what, um, which is what um, the, I think it was the Rambam, if I, my memory serves me. I believe it was the Rambam who said that. And it was Mark Twain who also said the land was just desolate. Uh, and so I go into all the details in that video. So that's in Revelation chapter 16, Gog and the people brought back from the sword. By the way, you can go here on my YouTube channel, and I have a playlist. I've got a playlist that is dealing with the book of Revelation. So uh, just keep that in mind. You guys can go there, and you can uh, take a look at that playlist. All right? So uh, I encourage you to do that. Let's get to the next question. Oh, well, did I finish that question? That's the question. Um I don't think that's talking about Israel. I really, really don't. I think that the beast that was, is not, and it will rise again, is talking about the Antichrist. I just dealt with this, John. I don't know if you're following my Revelation series, but I highly encourage it. I just dealt with this last Shabbat. So if you haven't checked out my Revelation series, I've been going into a lot of detail uh, on the book of Revelation. So... I guess I thought maybe you were watching that, but but if you're not, please do because I think you'll really enjoy it. I put a huge amount of of uh, research into this, and I show that the beast that was is not and will ascend. In my opinion, is talking about Nimrod. Nimrod means let's rebel, um, and then I show how Nimrod is actually uh, the same as Ninurta. Actually, let me see if I can bring this up for you guys. So give me just a second. I gotta uh, pull up the, the PowerPoint. Let's see if I can find it. Uh, it might take me just a quick second here to find that. I think I know where it is. And I will have it up in just a moment. Uh, here we go. I called it Nimrod Resurrected. Of course, I'm working on the the teaching for next week. and. Um, that's going to be a lot of fun. But anyway, so I, I talk about this in my study. Let me share that screen with you. All right, here we go. All right, so this is called Nimrod Resurrected. And let me see if I can get to the passage. Well, let's start right here. Okay, so uh, that which is, has been is what will be that which uh, I'm talking here, of course, from, from Ecclesiastes. Let me make sure that you guys can see what I'm seeing because it's a real bummer when I teach and nobody can see what I'm actually looking at. All right. So the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. Those who dwell on the earth will marvel, etc. All right. So I talk about this being Nimrod. I'm going to go really quick. Uh, we have ways of resurrecting uh, cats, dogs, well, you know, cloning them. And, of course, the idea is to uh, resurrect woolly mammoths. Uh, I think this is going to happen based on Genesis 3.15, Genesis 6.4, Daniel 2.43-44, and other scriptures. Uh, this is one of my, uh, my most recently favorite quotes. Uh, this is Chris Reno, Chris from Reno, Nevada. Uh, he learned 
that after he got in a bone marrow transplant, all of his, um, all of his, the DNA in his semen belonged to that of his donor. And he says, I thought it was pretty incredible that I can disappear and someone else can appear. So genetically, Chris wasn't there anymore, even though he was still alive, of course, but his DNA had changed. Uh, the DNA in his semen had changed to that of the bone marrow donor. Pretty crazy stuff. All right. So again, I can't go through the whole thing. It took me an hour to get through it, but um, I establish how Nimrod uh, is going to be. Let me get to kind of the good stuff here. And I think that will help us uh, put some of these things together. So I want to deal with, let's see. Okay. So yeah, Mark, Nimrod is the rebel. He's the one that blasphemes God, just as uh, the original Nimrod did that as well. Now, here we go. So Nimrod was known as Ninurta, Marduk, etc. So this is from uh, David Roll's book, uh, The Lost Testament. He, he says, he speaking of, Nimrod, he was represented as both semi-divine hero and God. And it looks like I'm not sharing. Well, that is a bummer. Let's try again. All right, you didn't miss anything. I was kind of talking to myself. All right, this is why I am both director and producer and star of the show here. So I'll try to be the, the, the producer as well. All right, so. Uh, so Nimrod was represented as both semi-divine hero and god. The Babylonians knew him as Ninurta, the hunter god, armed with bow, and linked him with Marduk, warrior god and lord of vegetation. The Sumerians of Eridu themselves elevated the mortal king Enmer Kar, uh, Enmer the hunter, to godhood as Asar, son of Enki, etc. All right, so there's, of course, a lot of detail. Now, it's this is the, the beast that carries the woman. Notice that this slide here, it's really interesting, uh, this, this graphic. This is a very, very old uh, depiction. Of course, it's been put on paper, if you will. Um, but this is an old um, cylinder, cylinder seal. And so in here, you have the beast. This beast is, a, uh, is a, basically a manticore, uh, also known as a lion griffin. And it's Ish, uh, Ishtar who is riding this beast and the guy who's driving is none other than Enlil, which is also known as Satan. So she is on the beast, right? The beast that carries her is full of names of blasphemy. Who is this beast? That's the question. Who's beast? Well, I, I deal, dealt with this in Revelation chapter nine. I talk about this manticore creature. Again, I won't go into all the different details, but uh, the manticore which is thought to be from Persia, is the same description that we have in chapter 9 of Revelation. And not only, I think it's not actually really a manticore, I don't think it's Persian, I think it goes all the way back to Nimrod. This is a symbol for Nimrod. Really amazing. But if you look at uh, Sumerian, he was known as Pabilsag, which means the ancient ancestor, or the first chief head ancestor, if you will. And uh, this bottom picture right here is a depiction of the uh, Neo-Babylonian Sagittarius, uh, also known as Pabilsag. All right, so again, there's so much in here. Uh, Ninurta, the beast that was, this is Nimrod. This is from uh, ancient.eu. Ninurta, identified with Ningirsu, Pabilsag, and the biblical Nimrod, is a Sumerian and Akkadian hero god of war, hunting in the south wind, 
Ninurta was the son of Enlil, Enlil Satan, a bearded god Ninurta with a star-tipped crossbow, cases on his back, a sword at his belt, and a sickle sword hanging from his right arm, draws a star-studded bow and aims it at a rampant lion griffin. All right, so this here is Ninurta right here. And notice these eight pointed stars. Uh, those are really significant because the eight pointed stars, some people think that when it talks about uh, the star of your God in Amos chapter five, it's talking about the six pointed star, but it's not. Um, so I don't want to give the whole the whole lesson here. But Ninurta, uh, he was uh, also known as uh, Nisroch in Second Kings chapter 19, which is probably just a... Uh, a little mess up there, a uh, little textual corruption from Nimrod. Nimrod, right? Remember him? Nimrod, the bad guy? And notice that here we have Ninurta, and he's on this lion griffin again. And then he actually becomes the lion griffin. Now, again, I don't want to go into all the detail because I spent a whole bunch of time, and I want to encourage you guys to go and check out that teaching. Uh, so, John, I hope you get a chance to go and check that out because I spent a lot of quality time in there, but I do not believe it's the state of Israel. I don't think that at all. Again, Israel has its problems, but uh, God is going to come and save them, not to destroy them when he comes back. All right. Thank you. Appreciate that. All right. Can you please explain Deuteronomy 23, 1 and 2? Is it a Kabbalistic branch of Sfirot reference? All right. So uh, the, uh, the Sfirot are the spheres. Okay. These are the the idea of the spheres that you have uh, these different um, dimensions is probably a, a probably the best way to put that. So let's go to De uh, Deuteronomy 23. Let me share my screen. I got to change my screen here so I get to the Bible. And let's try that again. There we go. All right. Make sure you guys can see that. All right, Dan. Deuteronomy 23, 1 and 2. Is it a Kabbalistic branch? That's the question. So Deuteronomy 23. All right. He who is emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. One of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. All right. So, um, no, I, um, I, so I used to go to a thing in Israel when I was living there. I was called Pizza Talk. I went because, yes, they give us free pizza. <laughs> and um, it, it was my first exposure to uh, Jewish thought. And um, I was amazed how they spent a lot of time talking about things other than the Bible properly, okay? Not to say that they didn't talk about the Bible, but they talk about a lot of other things, like they would talk about uh, the meanings of the letters, uh, which I think a lot of uh, Hebrew roots people like to get into. I find that to be really neither here nor there. I don't think it's, I don't think it's necessarily beneficial. I don't know that it's harmful unless you put too much stock in it, but I don't think it's really that beneficial either. And some of the ideas that I was exposed to that I uh, learned when I was going to this thing called Pizza Talk in Israel was, uh, as I now look back, it was part of the Kabbalah. And, uh, you know, some of it was, I, the stuff that I was exposed to, I thought was relatively 
uh, benign. Now, again, I'm not endorsing the Kabbalah, but they did talk about some of these other ideas. Part of the desire of the Kabbalah is to be mystical. Now, you may say, oh, that sounds really bad, but is it? Let's think about it for a second. Can you think of a book in the Bible that is incredibly mystical? There's actually a couple books in the Bible. Uh, I'll give you a hint. The first one is the Gospel of John. Whoa, big surprise there, right? Well, you probably are familiar that you have the three synoptic Gospels, and then you have the book of John. All right, so synoptic, uh, so it means with the eye, sin, right? So, so with your eye is the idea of the synoptic Gospels. In other words, the, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are very similar. They have similar content. It's spoken like somebody who um, had a, a very similar viewpoint, vantage point, or testimony about the life of Jesus. And it's based, shall we say, more in history, more in doings, more in here's what he said. Whereas you get to the book of John and it's here's what it means. All right. So the book of John, it starts off in the very first verse in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god now what's crazy is that that same phrase appears in the book of the zohar which is typically considered a jewish um book of kabbalah that's kind of the source of this stuff called kabbalah so we don't know when the book of the Zohar was written. In my opinion, it was probably written uh, sometime after the New Testament. And what's interesting is that they have verbatim quotes from the book of John. Uh, they have another quote. Uh, let's see if I can pull this up. I have a teaching. Let's see here. Sorry, I, I, I'm not good at uh, multitasking, so I can't think. I want to look for something and then also talk at the same time. <laughs> but uh, hey, that's that's part of the challenge before, right? So let me see if I can get my computer to respond. For some reason, it's not responding. Don't know why. One second. Let me, uh, come on, computer. Let's see if we can get this going. All right, I'm getting closer. Hold on. I'm going to pull up that quote for you in just a minute. All right, it's coming. And we have to play some music while it is thinking. And it is going to bring that up any minute now. I just know it. So let's. Give it a second. <laughs> I'm trying to stall here, guys. <laughs> so anyway, uh, it looks like it doesn't want to cooperate right now. I think I have too many things going. Let me see what I can do to speed things up a little bit. I bet you I can do something. All right. So anyway, I don't know. It doesn't want to come up. So anyway, um, I don't think that that is necessarily a Kabbalistic branch of Sphero to reference. Now, that they take something, the 10th generation, what I was going to say about all that is that the 10th generation is this idea of the 10 spherodes, all right? So they talk about the 10 dimensions, which I find astounding when you start getting into um, 
higher dimensions, mathematically based, that is. And uh, many physicists believe that there are 11 different dimensions. Now, we live in three, right? So if you have a, a point, uh, if you could imagine such a thing, just a point by itself would be the zeroth dimension. Then you have uh, one line that would be one dimension. Then you draw a 90 degree angle to that is now two dimensions and then 90 degrees to that. And then you have three dimensions and that's where we live, right? So that's the only thing we can really truly imagine. Now, there is another thing called time, which is the fourth dimension. And then they start to kind of fold back over upon themselves. So, uh, so those things... Uh, just one second. Sorry about that. We are having some repair people. <laughs> it's all part of the fun, right? Okay, so here we go. Um, Anyway, the, the dimensions start to fold over. But anyway, you have uh, 10 dimensions plus the zeroth, which gives you 11 dimensions. So I find it interesting that the thinkers of the Kabbalah were onto some things that are now being discovered by some of our mathematicians and uh, quantum physicists, etc. Now, again, where does it all lead? It's hard to say. So I'm sorry I can't give you a better answer because it's a little bit of a... Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a challenging question, and um, that's about all I can say. All right, let's try again. Okay, this is uh, Canaan Centurion. Question, what was the main reason the children of Israel went into captivity to Babylon for 70 years? Oh, well, it's pretty simple. They were not following God's ways. They continued to practice idolatry. They continued to practice idolatry, and they had a, um, they had a, a, figurine and idol under every green tree and on every high hill they had these things going on and god kept telling them to stop and they would not now we have that very clearly in the book of uh, ezekiel the book of jeremiah it's all over the place in jeremiah daniel is repenting of this that we you know he says we did not follow your ways we did not keep your laws etc but then there's also a reference in the book of Jeremiah that says that because they did not let the land lay fallow, they did not give it that, that seventh sabbatical year, that they then had to uh, pay in one, one lump sum. And so God took them out to let the land rest. So, you know, they didn't keep God's laws. And one of those things that they didn't do was let the land rest. So God took them out and he let the land rest. So that was... Uh, Obviously, uh, a big part of it, but it was also this this bigger thing that he they did not um, they did not follow God's laws, and so God took them out, kind of spanked them, put them in the corner for a bit, and then he said, "Okay, come on back, I still love you." So that's essentially the reason. Thank you for that good question. All right, have some coffee. Hold on, guys. All right, here we go. Mike asks, "Is the term Israel?" used post God's divorce of Northern kingdom always, or usually referring to Ephraim house of Israel, or sometimes speaking of all 12 tribes. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> all right. And um, I say, yes, 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 because it gets a little bit confusing and I'll have to admit that I've wrestled with the book of Ezekiel for years. And then finally, 
the light bulb went off. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay. It, it's talking about all these different people. So let's dig in to the book of Ezekiel. I'm going to do a really quick search here to show that uh, the house of Israel is a term. Let me do only the book of Ezekiel. So we're going to do the major prophets. And here we go. All right. So we have 101 verses just in the major prophets using the word or the term house of Israel. All right. So I'm going to get back to the book of Jeremiah in just a second because it appears there a lot as well. But when we, we come, first of all, to Ezekiel chapter 3. So he tells them that he's going to send them. He says, go to the house of Israel and speak with uh, my words to them. You are not sent to a people of unfamiliar speech and of hard language, but to the house of Israel. He says, they're not going to listen. And they're not listening to you because they don't listen to me, right? So, you know, don't feel too bad about this. All right, so we have this term, house of Israel, used a whole bunch. And uh, he says, I've made you a, a watchman for the house of Israel. So we have these two houses that are being used. So this is clearly after the house of Israel had been taken away. How do I know that? Well, we go to 2 Kings chapter 17. I believe it is verse 17. And God says concerning the house of Israel, he says, uh, yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah. So there you can see the two houses. Turn from your evil ways, keep my commandments and my statutes, etc. Nevertheless, they would not hear, but stiffened their necks. They rejected his statutes and his covenants that he made with them. And so the, they left the commandments of the Lord, made for themselves a molded calf, etc. And they caused their sons and their daughters to do bad things. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. All right, so he makes a very clear distinction between the two houses, between the house of Israel and the house of Judah. These are very clear distinctions. So that, of course, is at the time when it happened. What we saw in the book of Ezekiel is about a hundred and, um, let's see, probably about 150 years after the house of Israel had been taken into captivity. So they were clearly gone. And it was not understanding that, that they had been taken away some years before, that caused me a lot of confusion because I kept reading the book of Ezekiel and I thought, well, it's talking about the Jews, right? And then once I finally came to understand that there are two different houses, it was like a watershed. I'm like, oh, I get it, right? So so that was a huge thing. So again, the, the question, just to to put this back up, uh, is the term Israel used post God's divorce of Northern Kingdom always or usually referring to the Ephraim house of Israel or sometimes speaking of all 12 tribes? So it is sometimes speaking of all 12 tribes, right? Uh, typically, we have the term house of Israel used to speak of 
well, the, the 10 tribes. And then we have another term, which is the entire house of Israel. So when it talks about the entire house of Israel, then it's talking about all 12 tribes. Typically, when it's talking about the house of Israel, it's only speaking of the 10 tribes. And then there are other times when it's talking about Israel, we have to look at the context. More often than not, it is talking about the northern kingdom. But I don't think that that is the case um, always. And, and so I hate to say, you know, you never want to say always because there's always going to be some exception. Always, right? There, there will be an exception somewhere that you uh, or I had not accounted for. So, but most of the time, the term Israel is referring to the northern kingdom, whereas Judah, Judea, the Jews are referring to the southern kingdom. All right. Thank you, Mike. Let's go to McDonald Man. He says, uh, have you seen the UFO footage that's going around the Internet? It's not new, but the news outlets are now saying it's authentic. Do you think it's a distraction or the days of Noah upon us? Well, I think we are in the days of Noah. You know, again, how much to midnight are we really? We don't know until the clock actually strikes midnight, right? Uh, but it does seem like we're getting incredibly close. And uh, that footage is very telling, you know, what was happening. I, I saw that footage at least six months ago, if not even sooner than that, uh, or, you know, earlier than that. But, um, you know, these news things keep getting recycled. And so, you know, people are coming to an awareness of what is really going on. And the fact that the Navy would release this is quite significant. So the way I would kind of put all of these end times things together is I think we're going to have things like the coronavirus. In fact, it's pretty crazy. I was going through uh, a uh, an old presentation of mine, and I think I had done this around maybe, well, my the current iteration I did in 2015, but the first time I made it, uh, I think it was around 2012, and it was talking about a virus that had been created that was far scarier than anthrax or anything and it was actually the coronavirus and uh it cited dr fauci and i was just thinking well that's pretty weird right so i'm not quite sure what to conclude from that i know i could go off on some conspiracy theory which may be true but i always want to make sure i have enough i have all my facts right because uh, it's easy to just conjecturize and come up with anything you want but we got to have data right we got to stay true we got to have the right data and we got to make sure we're dealing with facts real facts uh verifiable facts that's that's part of the that's part of the the, the hard part right is to make sure we're actually having facts so um so we have these different things happening i would not be surprised if we have a, an economic collapse if we have the collapse of the dollar i mean they were saying that we were hours away from it back in 2008 and then we had an injection of 850 billion dollars which sounds like nothing nowadays when we already got 2.2 trillion so i think all of these things are are kind of setting up the stage and then i actually believe that the u.s empire um, is one way or another it's going to crash i hope it doesn't happen in my lifetime i hope it doesn't happen in my kids lifetime but we may not get that uh, in fact, it looks just the opposite, in my opinion. So we have these different things happening. And I think uh, when we have the U.S. empire crash, 
the petrodollar crash. The petrodollar, right? The dollar has its power because it's tied to oil, right? You have to buy oil in U.S. dollars. That's the agreement that was set up in Bretton Woods in 1947, I believe it is. So these uh, are the things that are keeping the U.S. dollar afloat and there's so much power. But if the world gets tired of the U.S. dollar and and because oil is, is we have such a, a huge surplus of oil right now, it's worth practically nothing. This could cause wars, rumors of wars, all kinds of nasty stuff. And uh, I would not be surprised if the U.S. hegemony fails. At some point, uh, a man with all the answers is going to rise up. He, in my opinion, will establish a new kingdom in Babylon. It will be in the land of Shinar between the two rivers. And there will be a new kingdom. I'm going to be talking about that this Shabbat. I'll talk about. Uh, Babylon has fallen, and a part of that I have to talk about how I think Babylon, the city, is going to be reestablished. And uh, I'll give you all the details for that this coming Shabbat, so check that out. Um, but part of this is that we're going to have two witnesses that are going to show up. The two witnesses are going to be calling mankind back to God, calling him, calling us to return. And they're going to have powers to boot, right? They're going to have all the, the goodies to go with this message in a way similar to Jesus when he came, that he was calling people to repentance and he had power uh, not to do plagues. He didn't do plagues. He did lots of good stuff. Uh, but these guys are going to come and very much like how Moses had the power of plagues at his disposal to authenticate his message, the two witnesses are going to have plagues as well. Now, I, what I think is going to happen is that these two individuals, these two witnesses, will be interpreted, labeled by the world as being extraterrestrials. And so the things that we're seeing with the coming out of, of, uh, of this top secret stuff is no longer top secret. I think that's just part of the conditioning that's happening in the world to get people ready for what's coming. So that when the narrative starts to play out, it all makes sense. Right? Oh, yeah, these two, you know, witnesses are not from God. No, of course not. They're just from some ancient alien. And they're not very nice. They're not fun to play with. And, you know, luckily we have contact with other ancient aliens, uh, namely Satan and the bad guys, right? But they'll be they'll be interpreted as being ancient aliens. So that's how, what I would say uh, that, yeah, it is a distraction, but it's part of the narrative. It's part of the scenario that is, is unfolding before our eyes. And this is one important part is to uh, establish that credibility that yes, there are aliens, there are extraterrestrials. And no, they're not demons. Of course not. They're not fallen angels. That's ridiculous. We don't believe in angels and fairies. No, we believe in science, right? And so we believe in evolution. We believe that somewhere long ago, life started in far distant galaxies. In fact, life had to have started. Evolution had to uh, have established other places on earth. I mean, if we happened, then other life must have happened, right? That's, that's the idea. And so now to have these other worldly beings show up 
and make an appearance, I think is very important. Thank you for that. All right, this is from Summer. Question part one. Okay, Sagittarius has a constellation Corona Australis, the southern crown at his feet. I see this connecting to the first horseman in Re uh, Revelation 6-2. The Greek word used for bow is tochon. Let's see if I can get the rest of your question. Part two, <laughs> and then there's part three. Okay, uh, tochon is the root word for toxic or toxon. Uh, toxic poison tipped arrows were sent forth from the bow. Toxon, if Nimrod is related to Sagittarius, as you said on Sabbath, part three, could Sagittarius relate to Revelation 6 2 and the bow could indicate a poison that's sent forth that comes from a crown? Well, um, I'm not sure if you're trying to tie this to coronavirus. I, I really don't know if that's warranted. Maybe it is, but it seems like a stretch to me. But but here's what I'll do. I will uh, share my screen with you again and share my presentation that I did. Uh, again, I encourage you guys to check out the whole thing because I went into a crazy amount of detail trying to put together uh, what we have. Okay, so let me do this. All right, so we talked about the star of your god, Molech. Now I'm going to go quickly. So uh, speaking to the house of Israel. So for the guy who asked about the house of Israel, uh, you also carried along Sikut, your king, and Kiyun, your images, the star of your gods, which you made for yourselves. All right, so this is Saturn or Molech. Uh, in Acts 7.43, there we have the word Romfa, which is probably just um, a corruption of the actual Hebrew. I won't go into all that. And then Sikut. The Sikut is a serial Babylonian Shukudu, meaning the arrow, a name for Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky. It was associated with the god Ninurta. So there's Ninurta again. Remember, Ninurta is Nimrod. Again, check out the whole thing. I, I go into much more detail. I go a lot slower, and you can check that out. So Sikut is a Sumerian god Ninurta, and um, uh, Sikut is identified with Sagkud, transliterated a Mesopotamian god list, etc., so anyway, he's identified as Ninurta. Now it gets even more interesting. So Ninurta is also known as Bel, which is Lord, uh, which is also Ninurta's common epithet and points of, to a connection with West Semitic Baal. Marduk came to replace Enlil in the Mesopotamian pantheon. So he took over conjointly the position of the father Enlil and the mythology of his son Ninurta. Similarly, Dagon in the West was partly manifested by his son, Baal, etc. Now, what happens is Ninurta also then merges with this lion uh, bird named Anzu. Uh, so he becomes the Thunderbird. Uh, so the two forms, bird and lion, tended to compete in the image of the god, who was sometimes a lion-headed bird, sometimes a winged lion with a bird's tail and talons. All right, and then uh, here we go. This is Pabilsag, meaning chief ancestor, which is Nimrod, in my opinion. So the constellation of Pabilsag is written Mul Pabilsag. The Sumerian word Pabil means ancestor or relative in combination with the final element Sag, meaning chief or foremost. His name can be translated as chief, ancestor, or forefather. Additional epithets like the weapon with a burning tip or he who strikes with a burning point, can be derived from the individual signs used in Pavel Sog's name. All right, and I did all the research there. And here's what I want to get to. Pavel Sog, or Ninurta, from Uruk. This is an inscription 
uh, circa 4100 BC, uh, which is talking about Nimrod. Notice this. So this guy up here in the corner is the same as Sagittarius. So Pavilsag was considered a son of the god Enlil, according to the most common tradition. According to the most common tradition, Pavisog merged with several deities. Uh, the most prominent one, Ningirsu Ninurta, the syncretism with Ningirsu Ninurta probably took place during the old Babylonian period. Pavisog's association with the netherworld could be due to syncretism with the underworld god, uh, deity Nergal. So the origin, origins of Sagittarius, the archer, are to be found in the strange composite figure known as Pavilsag. The familiar image of the Greek constellation as a horse centaur armed with a bow and arrow is, in fact, a simplified version of the Babylonian figure, which is a truly composite character with a number of features not seen in the Greek version, such as a set of wings, a scorpion's tail, and the head of a dog. The details of Pavisog's iconography show a considerable amount of variation. Some depictions omit the wings or the dog's head altogether, uh, etc. Okay, so... Uh, I won't go on with, with that anymore. Let me come back to my main screen. So, <laughs> per the question, could Sagittarius relate to Revelation 6-2? Yes, I believe so. The The one who uh, is on a horse with a bow, it could be that he's not so much riding a horse, but he's actually somehow part of the horse. Uh, I think Sagittarius, um, from the research that I've done, the research I just showed you, there's no doubt in my mind that Sagittarius and Pavilsag and Ninurta and uh, Shukudu, these are all talking about one and the same guy, which is Nimrod, all right? Marduk, same guy, Bel or Baal, all talking about Nimrod. What does Nimrod's name mean? Let's rebel. Let's rebel. And who is God wrathful against? Babylon. Right, and what happened at Babylon? Babylon, the gate of the gods, established by who? Drumroll, Nimrod. Right, it was established by Nimrod, the rebel. So it all points back to Nimrod, and uh, it just it you know kind of blows my mind when I uh, think about it all. When as I was putting it all together, I was just like, "Whoa, this is amazing stuff." of how it all fits back together. And I think what has happened over the years, as people have been looking at Revelation 17 and 18, who is this woman, uh, et cetera. Uh, I remember Dave Hunt, good researcher, good guy. He wrote a book called The Woman That Bites the Beast, and he concluded it was talking about the Roman Catholic Church. And he showed all kinds of, of icons that, that were the same as what you have in the book of Revelation. And so what I would suggest is that the, uh, the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church, the Vatican, uh, have their issues, and they could be part of the problem, but I don't think they're the root of the problem. I don't think they are the ones that we should be looking to when it comes to Revelation 17 and 18, because in Revelation 17 and 18, it's something that's worldwide. It's something that's long-standing, way before the Catholic Church ever came around. Has the Catholic Church been uh, poorly influenced? Sure. Has every king out there been badly influenced by this woman that rides the beast? Yes. Has the beast been active and uh, been doing things that he shouldn't be doing? Absolutely. So 
it all goes together. The one who uh, who was, who is not, and who will ascend, that's the beast. That is Nimrod. She is riding this beast, she being Ishtar, Inanna, the queen of heaven. It goes all the way back there. And, and it's not just one thing. It's not just the Catholic Church, or it's not just Marian worship, but all of these are branches that come out of these roots. So we have to go back to the root. And I think what happens is people uh, maybe didn't have the resources. I'll tell you, the internet is a great thing. I am so grateful for it. And it allows us to do research that was, you just couldn't do it in the same time frame. Uh, that uh, without the internet, you just, you couldn't do research as fast. Uh, so it's amazing how, you know, when I'm doing my research, I can just jump from one place to another from, you know, these ancient pictures, uh, you know, and then understand, okay, what does this actually mean, right? Because I, I, I did a tiny, 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 tiny bit of Sumerian, but uh, not, 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 not enough. Uh, I did a very, 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 very tiny bit of Sumerian. So uh, take me my word on that one. So I have to get, um, I have to really try to understand uh, what's happening with Sumerian. What's interesting is there are a lot of loan words that went from Sumerian into Hebrew. So that's, that's kind of cool. But anyway, um, we have to uh, really go back, and I'm grateful for the the tools that we have to, to do all this research. So yes, I would agree that Sagittarius is the the one uh, in Revelation six two. Good question. All right, this is Canaan Centurion. Question in the judgments listed in the Book of Revelation and in Matthew twenty four is deception the first chain of events of the unfolding judgment. Well, I don't know that it, I don't know that we could put it in a in a first or second or third place. I think deception is is part of all of it. I think that it's the underlying that's the foundation that make the the oncoming judgments possible. So without deception, without deception, the world is not going to buy into this philosophy. So again, I mean, if you want to put it at a place, sure, deception has to be first. But I don't think there's ever a time where he stops deceiving. And then he suddenly, okay, I'm going to tell the truth now. I think he's deceiving all the way along. People figure it out at, at you know varying points uh, in this. But um, deception is there. And according to the Bible, this guy is going to be a deceiver like the world has never seen. Except maybe for Nimrod. Maybe he's Nimrod just back from the dead. I actually suggest that it will be the the DNA, some of the DNA of Nimrod uh, will be brought back in. Maybe it's just Satan's DNA and they shared back in the day. I don't know. But in any way, he's going to be resurrected somehow, some way. Uh, some essence of Nimrod will be there in this, uh, in this, uh, this one that we know as the Antichrist. All right. Let's go to the next question. This is from Ed. Oops, hold on. There we go. Okay, what is the difference between the two words for repent in these verses? Job 42.6 and 1 Kings 8.47. All right. Good question, Ed. Pull up the Bible. So, in Job... Back here, Job 42.6. Make sure it is sharing. 
Job 42.6. All right, well, let's take a look. See what the Hebrew says. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Alchen em as ve nichamti al afar ve efer. All right, so nichamti uh, means to to rest. Here, I'll just pull up the Brown Driver Briggs to feel to be sorry, to console oneself. All right, so that in the nifal, it's to be sorry, to be moved with pity, have compassion, to be sorry about something, to have grief over, to suffer grief, to repent, uh, is the basic idea. All right, so to feel grief or sorrow about something. So it has to do with a feeling, has to do with a feeling. And then your per uh, eight, first Kings 847 is the next place. First Kings 8, oops, 847. All right, you know, they come to the land, they carry it away and repent. Okay. Okay, so uh, there's a whole bunch of shavs going on here. So shav, this is a uh, when they come back and nishbu ve shavu. So here the word shavu is to turn around. All right, so in Job, he's it's a feeling. I'm feeling bad about something. I'm feeling wrong. I'm feeling awful about something. Whereas the word shav is too little, you're going this direction and you come back, or you're going this direction and then you go this direction. All right, so that's the difference between those two words. Thanks, Ed. That's a good one. All right, this is from uh, Brilliant Radiance. Does the zodiac apply to the Bible chronologically and metaphorically? Um, hmm. I don't know. You might you might have me there. Uh, so to say, is it does it refer apply chronologically metaphorically there there is a, there was a book written by oh, i think i had the name just before i said it um it's called the gospel in the stars who wrote that uh, don't you hate that <laughs> man i had i had the name and then it just left me such a bummer um it'll come back so according to some scholars uh there's an idea that the the gospel story that the, the virgin, the lion, all this scales, you know, these were put in in the Bible. It, this is based on a reference in Job where it talks about the Mazarot. Uh, Mazarot would be uh, essentially the zodiac. Now, the question is, what do we mean by zodiac? I mean, what, what we have today, the thing we call a horoscope, is not biblical at all. In fact, we just saw that Sagittarius is referring to Nimrod. So that can't be too good. Um, you know, so then the question is, how do you interpret these things? Look, the stars are up in the sky, no matter how you look at it. And I, you know, I never could quite see these figures that were up there. Maybe my eyes aren't very good. Maybe my imagination isn't good enough. But I suppose if you stare at them long enough, you'll start to see a lion and a virgin and scales and Orion's belt and all that. I mean, I don't know. I think, you know, we all have the same stars up there. It's a matter of how are we going to attach a story to the stars? So, you know, whether or not 
you know, God, in a sense, put the Mazarot there for us to understand, maybe. Or has the story that God originally told been twisted, maybe. Do we not have enough data points? That's what I would think. We don't have enough information to really come to a hard conclusion. So I'm sorry I can't give you a better answer. I don't think we have enough data, enough information on this to really come to a solid conclusion. All right. Moving on. This is Stephen Shalom from the UK. Do you agree with Michael Rood's chronological gospels that Yeshua's ministry was about uh, one year or 490 days and not three and a half years? Well, I'm still thinking about that. Um, first of all, I don't think 490 days is really that close to a year. Um, now, I, I went and hung out with Micah Root, and he gave me the full tour. Right? He he showed me his his uh, huge, I mean, it was probably like 10 feet, 12 feet long uh, chart of how it all fits together. And I think it's very interesting. I think he has some good points. Whether he's right or not, I I don't really have a strong opinion about that. Um, and even if I did have a strong opinion, it doesn't mean that I'm right. Okay, so he could be right. I think he could be right. Um, I'm not sure that it makes a huge difference, at least not in my mind. It doesn't make a big difference whether Jesus was hanging out for three and a half years or one and a half years. Okay, <laughs> I, I'm still persuaded that it was three and a half years. Um, I was I was actually just thinking about this the other day, and there was really something uh, that struck me. Sadly, I can't remember that now. Uh, what I was thinking about, this deep, wonderful thought I was having about how uh, it talks about something with three years. Um, so yeah, I can't quite put my finger on that, but there just seemed to be a number of things that would point us to uh, still three or three and a half years. Again, if it's one and a half year, so then I'm fine with that. Uh, but um, I, I don't have a strong opinion, so I, I can't really say. But Shalom, Stephen from the UK, thank you for your question. All right, this is from Street. Uh, was God misrepresented, or has God, did God misrepresent reality? I don't know. When the prophet, under his guidance, wrote that the sun and the moon stand still over very specific geographic location. I don't think so at all. Uh, this is talking about in the book of Joshua. So let's go to that passage. And... Um, let's go to that... And um, let's see. Let's see, I'm trying to pull it up. I think I can do it. Pray for me. Hold on. I'll get this. It's been one of those days, I think. Kind of weird. All right, let's see if we can't get this thing to play nicely. And we'll do a Boolean search instead. Let's, I just forget the exact. Here we go. Joshua 10. All right. So I'm going to share this with you guys. So uh, so Joshua, of course, is uh, battling uh, the Nephilim this day. He's having a good time doing it. And, and he needed more, 
or time to finish the job. So he audaciously, he says, and Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, sun, stand over Gibbon and moon in the valley of Ayalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the people had avenged, revenged upon their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day. There's been no other day like it before or after that the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. All right, so how in the world could this happen? This seems to go against everything that we know about cosmology. But does it? All right, so let me see if I can maybe get something. Okay, here, I happen to have some tape on my desk. Here is our solar system. Now, let me just make this clear. I believe that the Earth is actually round. Uh, there are uh, people that think the Earth is flat, and I get their comments uh, more often than you would actually imagine. And um, I'm sorry if you happen to think the Earth is flat. You're entitled to that opinion. I don't hold it, so you don't need to put any comments in the comment section, just so you know. So if we imagine that this is our kind of our solar system, so imagine the Earth is going around. The sun is right here in the middle, okay? So the Earth is going around. I know it's elliptical. but um, as it's going around, all right, so here I have now the Earth, okay? So as the Earth, okay, this will be now the sun. Forget what I just said. This is now the sun, and this is the Earth. So as the Earth goes around the sun, now imagine as it's coming around, what if God pushed that out so that instead of going around this time, it would happen in 360 days, if God were to elongate, if we were to stretch out the orbit, so now it becomes longer. So the earth literally has a longer path to travel on. What would that do to the calendar days? That would add more days to the year. All right. We also have the thing in Hezekiah where Hezekiah is asking for uh, a sign that he's going to have an extra 15 years. And so he says, you know, he's like, well, you know, Moving the thing forward would be easy, so move it backwards. All right, so that also did something to the clock. That did something to our uh, rotation of the Earth around the sun. So here, and so of course now, while the Earth is going around the sun, it's also spinning. I don't have enough hands to make this all happen at the same time. But it's spinning as it's going around the sun, okay? So as it's spinning and it gets pushed out, right? So if this is uh, this is from Joshua's perspective, this is what he is seeing, and as it, as it's going this way, it's also going this way. Now, if God then pushes this thing out, so that instead of it just going like this, He's actually pushing it out, then it's entirely conceivable that from Joshua's perspective, the sun would stay would would not go down it would stay up there in the sky because the earth is literally being pushed out further in its orbit around the sun even though it's still spinning so god doesn't he doesn't stop the rotation of the earth he simply pushes the sun out further along its axis and i think uh, that is not my theory uh i heard that from a guy named john in southern california in uh, Irvine, I believe it was. I forget John's last name. I'm sorry, John. 
But if you're listening, I appreciate you coming up with that amazing uh, insight. And he was actually a, I think he worked for NASA or a, a space agency. And so he, he gave some serious thought to that. And I thought that was one of the best explanations I've ever heard for that. So I think it makes a lot of sense. And I don't think that God uh, misrepresented reality at all. I think God did something pretty incredible. And that would explain how he went from 360 days per year to 365 and a quarter. And of course, we've got uh, Hezekiah's um, uh, time in there as well. And uh, I don't know if that added or took away or whatever, but uh, it, it factors in uh, in that sense. Okay, let's go to Jeffrey. So Jeffrey Michael says, when Yeshua says, I tell you, not only to forgive seven times, but seven times 70 equals 490. Here comes the question. Uh, Daniel's prophecy addresses the 490 years of exile, but also refers to the ministry of Messiah. I'm not sure if I think that's a comment. Okay, yep. Well, I should have taken the fact that there was no cue there. I'm going to go back now to Christopher. Can uh, your take on Ezekiel 20, verse 25, the curses, Leviticus 26, and Deuteronomy 28? All right, so Ezekiel 20, verse 25. All right. Let me pull this up for you guys. All right. So, 20 verse 25, he says, Therefore I also gave them up to statutes that were not good in judgments by which they could not live. Now, the curses in Leviticus 26 uh, is where God says, Look, if you don't obey me, then I'm going to add seven. He doesn't say seven times, which is interesting. He just says seven. Uh, and then we have a similar situation in Deuteronomy 28. You go there. Deuteronomy 28. All right, so obey the Lord your God, and all these blessings will overtake you, but if you don't, then all the bad stuff's going to overtake you, right? But it should come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to carefully uh, observe all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And there's a lot of curses there. So we won't go into all of the curses because we just don't need to. So again, per the question, what is my take? Um, well, let's see, my take. So if we go back to Ezekiel chapter 20. So God says that he would scatter them uh, among the Gentiles, disperse them throughout all countries because they had not executed my judgments. But it despised my statutes, profaned my Sabbaths, and their eyes were fixed on their father's idols. Therefore, I also gave them up to statutes that were not good and judgments by which they could not live. And I pronounced them unclean because of their ritual gifts and that they caused all their firstborn to pass through the fire that I might make them desolate and that they might know that I am the Lord. All right. So he's speaking to the house of Israel. Now, I find it very interesting. I'm not. Uh, I, I kind of see where you're going, but my take is when we come to Romans chapter 1, and we go to the latter part of the chapter. We go to the latter part of this chapter. It says that God 
gave them up. In fact, in verse 24, it's pretty amazing. Well, it's not amazing. It's just God. He happens to say cool stuff. And it all just seems to fit together in such amazing ways. But notice, he says, maybe I'll even go back a little bit further. He says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power. And God had said that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they knew God, right? Who knew God? Israel knew God. Israel knew God. But they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. They weren't thankful for the things that God had given them, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is exactly what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. That's exactly what Israel did. They worshiped everything under heaven, including uh, Nimrod or Nisroch or Ninurta right, or, or Pabil Sag, all these different guys. They, they worship Sagittarius. It's all the same dude. Uh, and he has the form of a lion griffin. They they worshipped all that. And so therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness, right? We just saw that in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 25. God gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. You can't give something up if you don't have it in the first place. Now, you might say, well, this is talking about all mankind, possibly. But the main characters of the Bible, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their descendants, right? Those are the main central characters. Everybody else is uh, a supporting character to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. All right, so it's all about Israel from Genesis 12 to Revelation 22. It's about Israel. And Paul is, of course, speaking to, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Jews, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. So, these are the people he's talking about, right? He's not talking about mankind in a general sense, but he's talking about Jews and Greeks. And you may say, well, are we all talking about the Greeks? Is Greek uh, became a universal term thanks to Alexander the Great, who conquered the Persian Empire, who had conquered the Babylonian Empire, who had conquered the Assyrian Empire, who had conquered the Neo-Babylonian Empire, or the Old Babylonian Empire. Anyway, Alexander the Great conquers the Persian Empire, and he then exports Greek culture so that everybody became Greek-minded. Now, they were not all Greek biologically speaking. They were not Greek by blood, but they were Greek by culture. Which is pretty close, right? Greek by culture. So when he says for the Greek, he's talking about if you're not Jewish, you're Greek, basically, is what Paul is saying there. And what happened to the northern kingdom of Israel? They were scattered into the ethnos, into the 
ethno, the, the nations, into the goyim. They were swallowed up, we're told, in the book of Hosea. So huge. This is why when I finally put the pieces together of the Commonwealth of Israel theology, and I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> there were two houses. There's the house of Judah and there's the house of Israel, right? When I finally got that, it made so much sense. My mind was blown. And then I had to rethink pretty much everything in the Bible. But then as I was going through it, I'm like, oh, this makes sense. This makes sense. It makes sense. Everything made sense. I did not have any more loose ends because we don't have this Old Testament stuff and God back there is dealing with them. And then, then he sends Jesus. Now he's got this new thing where he's just kind of dealing with the church. That's how I used to see things. Now I see it as one amazingly integrated whole. Because it all goes together. And it's the commonwealth of Israel theology spoken of by Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 that puts all this together. If you want to check out one of my videos, I invite you to watch How God Put Israel Back Together. How God Put Israel Back Together. That's on my YouTube channel. Make sure to give it a like on this video too. And uh, I have another video. It's called God's Divorce and Remarriage. They're, they're both quite similar. So you can check out either one of those two videos. And I think that will help to put a lot of these things into perspective. So thank you for that question. Let's go to the next one. All right. This is from Shem and Zeitz. How much credibility should we give to the story of Semiramis, her relationship to Nimrod and Nimrod's supposed reincarnation, Tammuz? Were these all semi-Nephilim? All right, well, so I've I've gone through the, the literature and I have not found Semiramis at all, uh, other than a very late Assyrian queen, probably about the ninth century, and we're definitely not talking about her. So uh, I have not found Semiramis. Uh, that's definitely a Greek name. It's not a Babylonian name. So I don't know. I'm not really sure where that would have come from, Semiramis. Now, if we go back to much earlier sources, we, of course, go back to Nimrod. Nimrod, the rebel, he is the guy that established his principal cities were Babylon or Babel, uh, Erech, which is Uruk, right? So in Uruk is interesting. Uh, Al-Iraq is the modern name, which is, of course, the modern state of Iraq. And um, so, yeah, Babylon, Erech, um, Kalne, uh, Akkad, these are the cities that he established. And the principal goddess of both Babylon and Uruk was Inanna. Inanna is Sumerian, incidentally, Sumer, Shumer in Hebrew, uh, comes from uh, another Hebrew word, which is sh uh, probably Shnei Na'ot or Shnei Na'ot which is talking about two rivers, which in Greek is Mesopotamia, between the rivers, right? So you have the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Those are the two rivers that are being referred to, and that becomes uh, Shinar in the Bible, Shumer in uh, ancient uh, Near Eastern texts. And of course, we had the land of Shumer. Anyway, that goes all the way back there. So then Tammuz, or Dumuzi, it was Inanna's uh, lover. Uh, she was not a very faithful wife, mind you. 
and she uh, was happy to trade in her husband when the opportunity arose. So Dumuzi is probably also a manifestation of Nimrod, though there is some discussion about that. Gilgamesh is, is in there too. There's a little bit of, um, I, I have a couple question marks about exactly who Gilgamesh was, but I went and I traced back uh, Gilgamesh, uh, and Gilgamesh uh, probably means the ancient hero, ancient hero. So Pabilsag is Sumerian, meaning the chief ancestor. Gilgamesh means the um, ancient hero. And of course, we know that Nimrod was called a Gibor. And a Gibor is a hero. That's what the word actually means, a mighty one, a hero. So we start to see all these different connections uh, with all of these uh, ancient um, ancient people. It's hard to say if they're all exactly the same one, but all roads appear to lead back to Nimrod. And Nimrod was the one who established Inanna. Now, was she based on a real person? I don't know. But what I'm, my point is, I don't see where Semiramis really came from other than um, the two Babylons written by, um, what's his name? Yeah, Hislop. Yeah, so uh, Hislop. I I just don't know where Semiramis came from uh, from from ancient sources. I have not seen it in any ancient source. Uh, so it's a much much later source, probably from the Greeks or something like that. Uh, how they would trace it back, I would be very interested to to know because uh, I have not seen that in the literature. So Semiramis aside. Um, that there was a goddess known as Ishtar or Ashtoet or Inanna, and she had a consort named Tammuz, Tammuz or Dumuzi, and that their relationship kind of soured, according to the myth, because she was not faithful. She was mad. Apparently, she had gone down into the underworld and things didn't turn out well. And uh, when she was trying to get out, uh, it was reported to her that her husband wasn't mourning her death. And so uh, the only way for her to get out of the underworld was to have someone take her place. And so she made a deal with the gods that if uh, she could go up half the year, and then Dumuzi would go down the other half the year. So, you know, kind of a weird, pretty weird. Uh, but still, that is, um, that, that's uh, the myth. So again, I don't know what to do with Semiramis. I have not found her in the literature. Thanks for that, Shemin Zeit. Appreciate it. All right, this is from Jeffrey. I don't know if this is a comment. The two sticks speak about then coming back together. The prodigal son is a shadow picture. I, I would agree with you. <clears throat> all right, let's go to... All right, here, this is from Shemin Zeit saying that Semiramis or Shalmanezer or Shamuramat is a still a female name in Syria. Hmm. Okay, not quite sure what to do with that one. Um, we'll have to see. Let's see. Okay, uh, you should offer a service to see if questions stand the test of the Bible law. All right. Yeah, that'd be fun. All right, let's, this is from uh, Lena. Matthew 19, 12 speaks of eunuchs. Someone misused the verse to imply the word was used in the ancient world to refer to homosexuals. I disagree, but could you offer your thoughts? All right. Um, well, so um, let's go to Matthew 19, 
in 12, that is always the best option is to go and see what the scripture actually says. So I don't misquote it. All right. Let me uh, give my computer a second. It's sorry, guys, it's acting kind of slow and this is the best machine I got. So <laughs> I'm not sure what else to do. But uh, let me turn off the question so we can get a better look at that. All right, Matthew 19.12. Okay, so Matthew 19.12, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Oops, sorry. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He was able to accept it. Let him accept it. Let's turn on the Greek. And we will take a look at that. So, uh, is what you got right here. And, um, yeah, there, there's a, um, right. Uh, there, there's another word that Paul would use to speak about, um, essentially men who are soft, if you will. And, um, that would, would thought to be the, the man who, in in a homosexual relationship, the man who's who's assuming the role of the woman, um, and so I don't know if there's any correlation there. Uh, again, a eunuch is just a man who no longer has the ability to uh, have children. He's been castrated. Um, yeah, I'm not. I don't really think it's talking about homosexuals, uh, though. I could see how homosexuals might want to use that, and uh, but we're talking about really a different word in fact let me pull that up so that i can uh, show it to you guys and i think that might be really helpful for us uh, to take a look at that now um trying to think where paul says that I'll just look it up really quick. All right, here we go. Okay, so. And let me make sure that I am sharing my screen with you, with y'all. All right, here we go. Okay, so do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, nor the fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. So here we have uh, so homosexuals, malaku, and then we have uh, arsenokute. So basically, if I remember correctly, um, let's see here. Yeah, soft. This is right. So the, the malakos is soft, soft to the touch, uh, effeminate, right? So this would be, unfortunately, of a boy kept for homosexual relations with a man. And then you have the uh, arsenos, arsenokoite is the arsenos means male. And then uh, kute means to lie with. So a male liar with <laughs> kind of person. And then you have the malaku. So the malaku are, is translated here as homosexuals. The sodomites are the, gets on the graphic, of course. But that's the guy who is 
acting like the man and the malaku are the men who are acting like the woman in this case so it's a different word altogether from eunuch and i think that is what you were uh you were getting at lena if i if i interpreted correctly all right let's go on to the next question and we got about eight minutes i'm hoping to get to some all right wow uh what's the difference between israel and jacob in isaiah 42 24. well let's check that out isaiah 42 24. all right uh who gave jacob for plunder and israel to the robbers was it not the lord well this uh seems to me to be um what we call parallelism that it is a, a poetic way to say the same thing uh sometimes when we're talking about israel we're talking about the northern kingdom of israel but i would suggest that when we have jacob and israel uh, used interchangeably it's just it's it's a parallelism and that they're both referring to the same thing all right okay this is incarnate unlimited what's your take on the helidorius incident in second maccabees when yehovah showed up in a golden armor on a horse and gave him to gave him the business you might think that it to be an accurate depiction of his return you know, I, I don't know the passage well enough, uh, so I can't really comment on that. Uh, I've read First and Second Maccabees, but I'm not an expert on those at all. So, sorry. <laughs> okay, here, let's go to the next question. So, you, the first one struck out. All right, have you heard of the possibility of Paul being a false apostle? Christian truthers made a very solid for case for such. If so, that changes everything. It certainly would. And I would suggest running from such people. Um, in my opinion, and I can give you my opinion, because they'll give you your their opinion. But uh, in my opinion, I think people that claim Paul is a false apostle do not understand Paul, and they don't understand the Torah. I really think they're missing the point. And I think what makes Paul so difficult, as Peter said, is that there are hard things to understand in his epistles. Let's let's see what Peter has to say on this issue. So in 2 Peter chapter 3, he talks about good brother Paul. All right, so he says, concerning his, our good brother Paul, look, if Peter endorsed Paul, shouldn't we endorse Paul? Think about it for a second. Peter endorsed Paul. Jesus endorsed Paul in the book of Acts, which means that Luke endorsed Paul, which means that the gospel of Luke is still good, right? That endorses Paul. Peter is probably the real author behind the book of Mark. Mark was probably simply the scribe. Peter was the eyewitness who was giving his account. That means that Mark would endorse Paul. If we throw out Paul, not only do you take out the Pauline epistles and possibly the book of Hebrews, we're not entirely sure about that, but we would lose the book of Mark, the book of Luke, the book of Acts. We'd lose um, first and second Peter. 
we probably should throw out Jude because Jude seems to quote from Peter when talking about the fallen angels. There's not much left, quite frankly. So if we throw out Paul, we lose a tremendous amount of the Bible. So I don't recommend it. So what does Paul or what does Peter say about Paul? Let's check this out. So he says, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent, diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless and consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do the rest of the scriptures. All right, so Peter is claiming that Paul's writings are scripture he equates them to be equal to the rest of the scriptures right so i think peter was a great guy i think peter was an eyewitness of the lord jesus so if we're going to throw out paul then you have to say well was peter mistaken when he said that paul's a good guy he did say that paul's writings are hard to understand and notice what he said he said that there are uh, some people who are untaught and unstable people who twist Paul's writings to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. So these people are going to twist Paul. Now, Paul can be twisted in different ways, unfortunately. And this is part of the challenge, because then there's a the question, well, do you think you have Paul right? Look, I'll say this, that it has taken me years to really understand Paul, and I don't think that I've arrived, but I think I've gotten a lot closer. And some of the methodologies that I've used uh, is to try to understand Paul are to look for multiple witnesses. Now, when I was at the Hebrew University, we learned about the scientific method for studying the Bible. And I thought, what does the scientific method have to do with studying literature, right? We're studying the Bible, not not science this is physics but what i discovered is that the method is very important because though we can't we can't um, recreate something in the laboratory like you can in your biology class or your physics class what we what we can do is that we can use very stringent methods for determining what is most likely the truth kind of like what you do in a court of law so imagine if somebody came in and said, this guy killed somebody. Okay, that's his word against the other guy's word. So that's a witness, but is it a credible witness? Uh, what do we know about this witness? Can we get somebody else to corroborate that testimony? That's the same thing that we do when we study the Bible. We want to look for strong, solid witnesses. So we have to say... When we're going to scriptures, and, and Paul is no exception. If Paul is to be considered scripture, then we should get multiple witnesses, not just saying something about Paul the man, but about Paul's teachings. Those teachings should, should absolutely be authenticated 
by the rest of the Bible. So on the one extreme, we have the hyper-dispensationalists who suggest that Paul is the only guy that said anything of any value. That goes straight back to Marcion. And that ultimately goes back to Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, and I thank you, Eddie Chumney, for pointing that out to me. That was great. Uh, so, you know, this Marcionism is rampant within a lot of the teaching of mainstream evangelical teaching. And it's very unfortunate because it says that, well, Paul had a new dispensation. Paul had a, a new revelation. And so, therefore, we, we pretty much read the books of Paul uh, as, as truth, as stuff we have to live by. But all the other stuff is just kind of commentary. It's ancient history, but it doesn't really apply to me. That's, that's the hyper-dispensational model. Then you have the other model uh, where people are saying, well, Paul is the false apostle. and He's the worst guy ever. I think neither of these two extremes have understood Paul because they don't understand the Torah. And if they understood the Torah, they would understand Paul. So they go hand in hand. The things that Paul talks about are indeed difficult. And that's why they're so easily twisted. Because if you're untaught and you're unstable, then you're going to twist them because you don't know the foundation. And that's where so many of our evangelical brothers are, is they they really don't know. They think that Paul is in a class all by himself. No, not at all. Paul had zero, and I will repeat, zero authority to change anything in the law. Didn't Jesus come to say, I, didn't he say, I didn't come to do away with the law. I'm not going to change one iota, one jot or tittle, right, of the law. I'm not going to change anything. It's all staying till heaven and earth disappear. Nothing's going to change. You know, and then Paul comes along and and the Marcion folks say, well, Paul changed it. And God changed it and told Paul and didn't tell anybody else. He didn't tell anybody else that the Sabbath was done away with. He didn't tell anybody else that the feasts had been done away with. He didn't tell anybody else that the law had been nailed to the cross. He only told Paul. That's what people would suggest. And so then the knee-jerk reaction to that theology is to say that Paul's the bad guy. Those are both uninformed positions. They're uninformed. They, neither of those is understanding the Torah. Because what Paul said completely is in harmony with what Jesus said. And what Jesus said was completely in harmony with what God the Father said. They have to be. They absolutely have to be. So unfortunately, we have a fair number of people who are uneducated in the Torah. Uh, they're unstable, and Paul gets twisted sometimes this way and sometimes that way. So, um, per your per your question, I would say emphatically, no, Paul is not a false apostle. I would say the people that claim that are false apostles. They don't understand Paul. They don't understand the Torah. They don't understand a lot of things, and it's a bit of laziness because they haven't taken the time to investigate the Torah and see how. The Torah and Paul and Jesus are all on the same line. They're all on the same line. There's no inconsistencies. The trouble is the easier thing to do is to just reject either Paul or reject the Torah because that's the easier lazy man's thing to do. It really is. It's laziness. Uh, and I, Again, just from my own testimony, 
I've had to rack my brain, pull out my hair, you know, just say, Lord, help me understand. I don't get it how this seems to be at odds with this. And then after a while, you know, I, I connect the dots and I'm like, oh, I see it. I see it. I mean, it's been painstaking research at times to connect the dots. And now it's like, oh, yeah, of course. Right. But it wasn't always that way. It took so long. And this is why uh, Chris Steinle, Doug Krieger, and uh, Gavin Finley, the four of us, have created something called the Commonwealth of Israel Foundation. Uh, we also started a website called CommonwealthTheology.com. You can go there and check out some of our articles. Um, the four of us are currently working on a book. And I'll tell you what's so amazing um, is that I started going in this direction of the Commonwealth of Israel theology ideas. Uh, somewhere between 2012, 2011, 2012, up to about 2014 when it really got solid in my brain. And so I was, you know, on this thing like, yeah, the Sabbath is still good and pork is still off the menu. It was never on the menu, right? And, and so this whole idea of we are part of Israel was, was my new paradigm. And I remember speaking with Doug Krieger years ago. I was driving in the car and we were talking and um and i i just got the sense that yeah we're not on the same page all right he, he you know i was just floating some ideas past him and th they weren't sticking let's put it that way and then before i know it he co-authors a book with um uh, with with uh chad um trying to think of chad's last name <laughs> anyway i'm sorry chad i know your last name i just can't think of it but uh so he co-authors this book with chad it's on my bookshelf back there and and i'm I'm reading the book and i'm like but this sure sounds like commonwealth theology right and i'm like hey doug what happened it sounds like you changed he's like yeah man I, I i saw the light you know and i'm like wow okay so he and i were, were talking for quite a while and we're just like i'm like how did you like what happened he's like i just kept reading the bible man and there it was I'm like, hallelujah right praise the lord so then um i invited uh those guys chad schaefer by the way there we go i knew your name chad i knew it this is blanking on me all right so so i had chad schaefer chris steinley doug krieger gavin finland we all came to the way congregation we had a conference and chris wasn't on board he you know he was he was sympathetic but he wasn't seeing the things that we were seeing. And I just thought, okay, you know, in time, he'll see it, you know? And then he calls me and he's like, hey, you know, we got to start a foundation. I'm like, why? <laughs> you know, he's like, cause you know, the Commonwealth of Israel, right? Like, I'm like, wait, well, what happened? He's like, he's like, I just kept reading the Bible. I kept reading it and there it was. And I'm like, wow. Okay. So it wasn't me. I wasn't working on these guys. I wasn't, you know, sitting there every day trying to convince them to believe this stuff. God worked in their heart and he showed them. And now we're all just kind of like little kids. We're like, this is so exciting because what we're seeing is that all the pieces fit together. They fit together so beautifully when, when we have the Commonwealth theology at its core. When you're a dispensationalist or a replacement kind of guy, these things don't fit. You have all these loose pieces in your puzzle that you're like, I don't know what to do with this stuff. Well, the Commonwealth of Israel theology, that we are part of Israel, that the, the Jews, house of Judah, the house of Israel are part of the same, the same thing, this commonwealth that God wants to restore and, and fix and put it all back together. Now it makes sense. 
But before, I could not make any sense of it. So, yeah, I really strongly advise against the the, the teaching that Paul is a false uh, apostle. He is not. He is a great apostle. Uh, but it, it's hard work to understand Paul. There's no question. Okay, this is from Gary Allen. Does Nimrod have descendants like Jesus was a descendant of David? Could it be possible that it's just a descendant of Nimrod who shares uh, memorialized lineage and DNA? Uh, Gary, I don't know. Uh, I, I, he probably has kids, you know, or had kids. Um, we can only speculate whether some, you know, again, I don't know if his DNA is hiding in some laboratory somewhere. If it's in some um, in, in some tomb and we're going to find it, you know, here lies Nimrod the Great. I don't know. It's speculation. So I think a lot of things are possible. Uh, I cannot say how that DNA is going to show up. It's a guess on my part. Uh, and, and it may be something different that I haven't thought of, that none, none of us have thought of. But, but in some way, some form, he is going to be reconstituted, shall we say. Um, so, all right. Let's keep on going. We got maybe time for one more, maybe one more, two more. Okay, this is from Uzi. Uh, question, can you briefly explain the new heaven and new earth? No, I cannot briefly explain the new heaven and new earth. In relation to the millennial reign, Isaiah seems to put the new heavens and earth at the beginning of the millennial reign. All right. So, guys, check out my Revelation study. Every Saturday, I teach through the book of Revelation. And I've been doing slowly, which is good news because that means that I'm giving lots of attention to all the details. I'm currently in Revelation 18. Uh, I'll probably finish that this week. And then, uh, of course, Revelation 19, right? It's all talk about the return of Jesus, the gathering of God's people. So I'll spend some, some time there, obviously. So probably in about a month, I will be in Revelation 20, 21, somewhere in there. And um, I'm going to deal with the new heavens and the new earth extensively. So it's really hard to do it, uh, you know, in a nutshell or standing on one leg, as we say in Hebrew. Um, I can tell you this. The, the standard model that the new heavens and earth come, this is the standard model, that the new heavens and earth come after the thousand years, I believe is erroneous. Because when you compare Revelation 21, where John says, Behold, I saw new heavens and a new earth for the first heavens and the first earth passed away. Uh, that is the same heavens and earth as what, Rev what Isaiah sees in Isaiah 65 and 66. I've looked at the literature. Uh, Albert Barnes suggests that there's actually three different sets of heavens and earth, which I have no idea how he and others get these ideas. Um, but again, what's, what's hap what happens is we people start with theology, then they go back to the Bible. Can't do that. Got to start with the Bible, then let it your theology come out of that, and be willing to modify your theology as time goes on. As you understand the Bible better, you have to modify the theology because your theology is just kind of a just kind of a, a a big statement of what you think you understand. But we're always learning more, so we have to have to go back. All right, so please uh, check it out. Even if you don't watch it live, you can watch it after the fact. I go through so much detail on this uh, this whole this whole this whole thing. All right.
let's get maybe to let's see here looks like we're almost done uh last mail i don't know i'm trying to end it here guys but anyway you speak excellent hebrew uh given the pheno phonemes and pronunciation of each letter could the tetragram pronounced yahua is that one possible pronunciation uh well thank you i appreciate that uh, i did live in israel for three years and i studied modern hebrew biblical hebrew aramaic akkadian um greek so i think that was it um so i don't believe it's possible that it could be yahua i don't think that is one of the options i think that is something that people that don't speak hebrew came up with because uh, it seems to fit in their minds uh, so i don't think that's a possibility but you can decide for yourself so i i think yehovah is the actual pronunciation uh, i used to make a case for yahweh or yahweh um but i think yehovah is the correct pronunciation and uh, i have nehemia gordon to thank for helping me understand and see the evidence and i i never well i rarely take people's word for on, on things i will go back and i will look at the evidence for myself and sure enough i found about 50 instances in the hebrew bible where the vowel markings are still there so i'm convinced that it's yehovah i don't think yehovah is possible but i know i've had people get very upset at me how can you say that okay whatever <laughs> I, that's my that's my thought on it all right let's all right this is from day one or one day what is the most reliable translation in english don't know it's hard to say uh you know sometimes the niv is a great translation sometimes it's not sometimes the king james or new king james is really awesome and sometimes it's not sometimes i like the esv sometimes i like the net even occasionally i like the nlt because they all have their pluses and minuses. So translation is hard uh, to try to convey the, the meaning, the essence, the spirit of what was said in one language into another language. There's always gonna be something lost in translation. And that's why I think the best Bible you can have is the one that you read. Now I'll tell you the ones that I, I like, uh, I, I do like the New King James, I think it reads well. I like the ESV as well, I think it's great. In fact, I listen to the ESV Bible, a lot i use a app called faith comes by hearing i highly recommend it it's free you can download it to your phone and you can listen you've got a guy reading uh, you have a whole team of people reading the bible to you it's dramatized so i love it you know i'll just sit in bed and listen to the bible sometimes you know i might just wake up early and put in my headphone and just listen it's great it's wonderful or when i'm going to bed you know i don't have to sit there and my eyes get heavy no i just pop in my earphone and I listen to the Bible. I love it. So I encourage people to do that. Um, is What's the best? It, that is really, really hard to say. There's a lot of factors that go into that. So the best one is the one that you read. All right, guys, I think I'm getting close. We're getting close here. Uh, have you heard about the mountain Abraham was called to offer Isaac on, turning out to be Golgotha, thereby acting out what Yehovah would do in the same spot um yeah um that certainly is a theory i don't know that we have uh any real archaeological evidence for that i think it's tradition and it may be a real tradition it may be true so I, I can't say that it's not 
but I can't say that it is. So I think it's an interesting tradition and it might be true. It, it's just the question is how can we really know if it is, I mean, if you believe the tradition, then it's true, but uh, you know, how can we know otherwise? All right, guys, we're going to have to call it quits for today. This was awesome. It went almost two hours. So thank you for tuning in. God bless you guys. Uh, just a reminder, if you want to help support this show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash Doug Hamp. Also, I want to encourage you, invite you to come to the Way Congregation. Well, that's the give thing. Uh, you can do that too. But um, you can come to uh, this YouTube channel on Shabbat and we have our teachings each and every week. I'm going through the book of Revelation. Been having a great time. I think you guys would really enjoy it. I talked about zombies. I talked about Enlil. And I talked about Ishtar. Uh, I've talked about DNA and other weird stuff. There's some great stuff in that book. And we're not even to the end yet. So check it out. I hope you guys can join us on the YouTube channel at 11 o'clock on Saturdays. 11 Mountain Standard Time, 11 a.m., of course. God bless you. Take care.